Please take a seat. If you have a Bible with you, we're going to spend some time looking at God's Word together. Um, So if you have a Bible, could you be finding uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4? Um, Again, just repeating some of Grant's welcome at the outset. Just a a warm welcome to anyone who uh, is here for the first time, who just happens to have chosen this Sunday to visit. Uh, You are very welcome. Obviously, you join us um, at a uniquely painful moment. But we're very glad that you're here. Uh, In the past week, we learned that a member of our church and very dear friend, Chris Marriott, was killed. Uh, He was not far from home. He was seeking to help a woman who had already been attacked uh, when he and others were deliberately driven into. Uh, He passed away at the scene. A criminal investigation is underway. And we are just at the very outset of trying to process what has happened. Uh, Chris and his family were with us uh, when we met as a church over the Christmas weekend. Uh, But now he's not here. Um, I'd just like to welcome as well uh, those who have made a special effort to be with us today, maybe just travelling from further afield uh, to be with us. I hope that you find comfort and encouragement by by being here this morning. Um, And thank you for being here. It's also possible that some of you are here today uh, without any previous connection to this church at all, uh, but you did have a connection with Chris. Um, As is already very apparent, Chris was a man of huge compassion and massive influence who had served uh, many people and many organizations in this city and beyond. And I'd just like to Uh, extend a warm welcome to you as well. I hope that you find this time helpful. A time will come for us to remember and pay tribute to Chris and his life, and we we can do that informally when we're uh, still together and talking later on. Today I'd like us to focus on a few verses Um, from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I'll read a section. We're only only really going to look at a couple of verses, but I'll read the section that they're in. And that's 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 13. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you, 
that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another uh, with these words. Uh, just to say, every now and again, I may pause. Um, if you need to just take a break, stand up, go out, come back in again, you're at liberty to do what you need to do. Okay, and I'll be at liberty to work out how I do this as well. The phrase I'd just like to focus on to start with uh, from verse 13. So that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. I'm going to highlight a few points that I think this helps us with. Firstly, Believers in Jesus Christ will grieve and need to grieve. Grief is fundamentally unavoidable. It is inevitably part of life, whoever we are. All we have to do is live long enough and we'll experience loss. Grief is not an option that we choose. It comes to us at times and in ways that we cannot control. Stating the obvious really, but believing in Jesus does not mean we automatically live a charmed life where nothing goes wrong, nothing takes us by surprise, and nothing hits us hard. We're not immune. Paul the Apostle Paul was aware that bad things can happen to good people. Bad things can happen to God's people. Uh, just a moment ago, Bless Anne uh, read from familiar words to many of us in, in Romans chapter 8. So let's just revisit that for a moment. In Romans chapter 8, and reading again just from verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul is not saying that we can be more than conquerors because we will never experience trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness or danger or sword 
He's saying that in those things, when those things hit, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Peter could write to Christians scattered throughout the world, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. More often when grief comes, we might have time to prepare for it. With the death of Jesus, you can read in the Gospels how the disciples were filled with grief before Jesus died. They didn't understand all that was about to happen. They wouldn't have anticipated everything, but they they knew something of what was coming. And they were already grieving before he died. I think in Luke we're told that they were exhausted from sorrow in the garden of Gethsemane when they were still with Jesus. Sometimes we can anticipate a little bit what's coming, and that's being hit hard. Consider Jesus himself, the ultimate good man to whom bad things happened. God's man, good, holy, righteous, perfect in every way. When we look to Jesus, we see one who never had to apologize or repent of anything, any thoughts, any attitude, any word, any deed, anything he had done, anything he hadn't done. So it's the ultimate miscarriage of justice that he was falsely accused, wrongly convicted, and brutally killed. Bad things can happen to very good people. What we're dealing with now is the kind of grief, the kind of trial for which there is no warning. There's no preparation. There's no bracing ourselves. There's no anticipation. There's no time to prepare. Maybe that's more akin to another good man in the Bible. Stephen that you can read about in the book of Acts. A good man, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, a man who was eager to serve other people, but for whatever reason was perceived as a threat, the situation quickly escalated and he was killed. So the question is not, Do we grieve? The question is, when grief comes, how do we respond? And again, we're not just dealing with grief. We are dealing with trauma. Just simply, obviously, I guess grief can present itself in all sorts of different ways. That might be evident already for different people. Some, it's like, just give me something to do. 
I need to be active. I need distraction. For others, it might be, I can't do anything. I just need to sit. I just need to be. It's understandable on this occasion that some, some of us just are, will be numb and in a state of shock and it won't hit and maybe it won't hit for a while. You might chat to someone, you think they just seem blank. Well, that might be you. Someone's chatting to you and you just feel blank. Traumatic grief will come in different ways at different times. It will be distressing and it will be numbing. There'll be occasions when some will struggle to sleep. And grief can also mean we struggle to wake up or stay awake. Some of us, or at different times, we might just, we want a thousand hugs in the next five minutes. And sometimes we just want to be by ourselves. And there's grace, and perhaps those who want the hugs need to recognize sometimes people will just need a little bit of space. And those who might prefer solitude will need to recognize sometimes you just do need to be with people. And we need grace for one another at different times. So but believers in Jesus Christ will grieve. But secondly, believers in Jesus Christ do not grieve like the world. There are a number of potential ways we can respond to grief that I think in, that God would steer us away from. Sometimes we'll see in the Psalms, Psalm 73 is an example of a psalmist who thinks, well, God, you bless the pure in heart, but I'm frustrated because it would seem that it's not the righteous that live a charmed life. It seems to be the arrogant and the wicked that get away with things. And we're the ones hit hard. And the psalmist is bringing frustration to God. It's possible for that to become bitterness towards God. But he uses the psalm to come to God and arrive at a better place. You might be familiar with the story of Job who suffers terribly and he manages to suffer terribly without blaming God, we're told in Job chapter 1. However, someone very close to him in chapter 2 says, Job, are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. That's not a great response. Martha and Mary, two sisters that knew Jesus, their response is not as extreme as that. Their brother dies, Lazarus, and Jesus doesn't arrive for days. And one at a time, they both speak to Jesus, and they both more or less say the same thing in John chapter 11. Jesus, if you had been here, in effect, this could have been avoided. So it's, it's two sisters gently trying to rebuke Jesus. And I believe the Lord would want to steer us away from that as well. 
It's understandable. They've been talking. It's the same question. It's like the same narrative, the same script, the same explanation comes out. Jesus, you got this one wrong. I'm not delving into the deepest questions today. I'm just suggesting we steer from that. What about the Thessalonians to whom Paul is writing? I think Paul is writing these words not just because they're grieving, but because in their grief, the very substance of what they believe is being shaken. I think they may have had the expectation early on in the early church that Jesus would come again before any of the disciples died. So then when people did pass away, they weren't just dealing with their sorrow, their, their faith was being shaken. It brought into question what they believed. That's why Paul wrote this. It's not exactly the same for us, but the trauma of what's happened could be shaking the very fabric of what some of us believe. Honestly, that could be what you're thinking right now. Can I still believe this? Can I still believe this stuff? And if that's the case, we will be tempted to shrink back. Recently, we've been looking through the Apostles' Creed, this ancient declaration of the Christian faith that highlights truth that has sustained Christians through thousands of years and right across the globe. And we've worked through it. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, that talks about the death, the suffering, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, his ascension, the fact that he's seated right now and that he will come again in glory. I believe in the Holy Spirit. It comes on to talk, say, I believe in the church. I believe the in the communion of saints, it says. If our faith is being tested like never before, we will be tested on that. I used to believe in something. I'm going to pull back from it. And we'll be tempted to pull away. Traumatic grief does not inevitably draw people together. It has the power to pull people apart. When it might seem logical to you at some point to isolate yourself. I'm just not quite sure I can face it today. I'm not sure I'll go. Paul 
Paul writes at the end of these verses I read out, therefore, encourage one another with these words. I believe the church. I believe that God knits a people together and will help them encourage one another, help us to encourage one another with no pretense, not just feeling that you've got to put a face on and, pre and pretend, but that God helps us by being part of a community, being part of a community of faith who love the Lord God. It will go on. That ancient creed also will say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And that will be tested now. If we are tempted to shrink back from the Christian faith that has sustained people over thousands of years, we'll be tempted to foster bitterness and seek revenge. It's understandable that for some, the response, either now or at some point, is mainly anger. But the Bible's clear. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're angry. I don't think you have to entirely hide the facts that you might be angry. I think you need God, His Word, and this community to help know how to deal with it. Pray for justice. But remember mercy. The Lord God has forgiven murderers before with Moses. With the Apostle Paul, who was stood by enabling Stephen's martyrdom. Remember your Saviour who forgave his executioners whilst still in the agony of death. I'm not saying that's a click of the fingers, but we believe some things. It's being tested. And I pray that we come through those tests with God's help. And the Apostles' Creed rounds off, I believe in the life everlasting. And we might just be tempted to shrink back from that, just focus on more earthly things. Now, you might be thinking at this point a question. How is that even possible, really? That sounds unreal. Are you trying to tell me that we kind of vaguely, we kind of keep telling ourselves kind of vaguely positive things as if that will help? Well, believers in Jesus do not grieve like the world because thirdly, Believers in Jesus Christ have genuine hope. 
What is that hope? What is that hope based upon? You know, if I said, I hope that it'll be a... The sun will shine tomorrow. If I hope that Arsenal win the Premier League, I don't have any particular affiliation. I, I, I hope that war in Ukraine will end this year. I hope that I get a magic wand for my birthday. Uh, you would think, well, those aren't very strong hopes. Some of those might happen, but maybe not. And we could just think that hope is a possession of a few people who, for some reason, have to do with temperament or genetics, just seem generally to have a, a positive out, outlook, that it just depends on personality. Some people by temper, temperament might be more naturally optimistic. Well, that's a bit tricky on a day like today. But that's not what this passage means or is talking about. Grieving with hope is possible and makes a difference, not on the basis of what I feel and what you might be thinking about when you wake up in the morning. It's based on some concrete things in verse 14. We do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope, for we believe that Jesus died. Real death with real power and purpose and benefit for us. Like I said, in one sense, the death of Jesus was the greatest evil and the greatest injustice. But his death was necessary as the only way by which we sinful human beings might be forgiven for all the ways in which we have turned away from God and hurt other people. The message of the cross is good news to everyone. It's good news to us and to anyone here when we're aware of our own shortcomings, our own limitations, our own sin, our own guilt, the message of the cross is that in Christ, God has, if you've already received it, or will, if you're willing to receive it, forgive you and bring into your life a forgiveness that is itself concrete, definite, unchanging for eternity. So then that forgiving someone else is made possible when we know that we ourselves have been forgiven. So we believe that Jesus died. We believe that Jesus rose again. Again, this is where our hope comes from. Having died, Jesus did not stay in the tomb. And this too makes all the difference for us. It shows God's victory over apparent defeat. You can see how that's put in, in Acts chapter 2. Uh, and verse 23. Speaking of Jesus... Peter said, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. 
you with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. What looked like defeat became ultimate victory. What involved horrendous suffering has actually brought about glory. And what involved a real death has become irrepressibly never-ending life for Jesus. And that means we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Chris is not going to wake up here on the earth with us. But already he has woken up with Jesus. On Wednesday, Chris Marriott entered the presence of God to be with his Saviour in paradise. One day, along with all those who believe, Chris is going to receive a new body. A new body like Jesus. Like Jesus' body. So never liable to suffer ever again. The disciples, when they met the risen Lord Jesus, could recognize him. Maybe they didn't recognize him immediately, because at that point, Jesus had his new body. And even though his new body still had wounds, there'd be no weakness to that body. There'd be nothing vulnerable to that body. Totally new. But they could recognize the Lord Jesus. And so I believe for every person who has received the Lord Jesus Christ and his salvation and forgiveness into their lives, we will be reunited with those in Christ that we've lost. And we will recognize them. And in glory, we will know one another more richly and deeply than we may even have known a person for the last 25, 15, 46 years. But we're going to have to be very patient. We are now just beginning a very painful and long-term journey. We can't take all the hurt and all the questions away with one flick of the wrist. But we can be sustained and encourage one another with real hope of what is to come 
in a real relationship with God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, we may not see what we hope for for a long time. But hope is about waiting for that for which we are certain. And we trust the Lord God to help us on that journey. Let's pray.